0: The following is a conversation with Jay McClelland, a cognitive scientist at Stanford and one of the seminal figures in the history of artificial intelligence, and specifically neural networks, having written the parallel distributed processing book with David Rommelhart, who co authored the backpropagation paper with Jeff Hinton. In their collaborations, they've paved the way for many of the ideas at the center of the neural network based machine learning revolution of the past 15 years. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, so hopefully you don't skip. But if you do, please still check out the sponsor links in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. I use their stuff. I enjoy it. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Paper Space Gradient. Which is a platform that lets you build, train, and deploy machine learning models of any size and complexity. I love how powerful and intuitive it is. I'm likely going to use PaperSpace for a couple of machine learning experiments I'm doing as part of an upcoming video. FastAI, maybe you've heard of them, Jeremy Howard runs it. It's a course I highly recommend, and uh, FastAI uses PaperSpace Gradient. You can host notebooks on there, you can swap out compute instances at any time. Start on a small scale GPU instance or even CPU instance, and then swap out once your compute needs increase. I'm really excited about what they're calling workflows, which provides a way to automate machine learning pipelines on top of Gradient compute infrastructure. It makes it really easy to build a production app because all the orchestration is reduced to a simple configuration file, a YAML file. To uh, give Gradient a try, visit gradient.run/lex and use the sign up link there. You'll get $15 in free credits, which you can use to power your next machine learning application. That's gradient.run/lex. This show is also brought to you by Skiff, an end-to-end encrypted and decentralized collaboration platform built for privacy from the ground up. What Signal is to messaging, Skiff is to document writing collaboration. It's like Google Docs, but with a lot more security features, and actually it has a bunch more usability features. I speak from experience and from a place of respect and love. I'm a big user of Google Docs, probably have over a thousand documents on there. I also use Evernote, Notion, Google Keep for uh, various kinds of note-taking. But I really love the interface that Skiff has and obviously the security features are just unparalleled. On Skiff, only you can decrypt your data, no one. Not even Skiff can never see it. If you like using Signal, which I do, you will love using Skiff. They're offering listeners of this podcast early access to their platform. You get to skip their over 60,000 person waiting list. Sign up at Skiff's beta. The URL is slash Lex. Again, go to slash Lex to sign up for the early access. This show is also brought to you by a new sponsor, an amazing one. It just blew my mind. It's called Uprising Food, the maker of low carb, keto friendly bread. And recently, They're also making keto-friendly chips. The bread is only two net carbs per serving, six grams of protein, and nine grams of fiber. When they first sent me the bread as a pitch to see if they want to sponsor the podcast, I thought, looking at the nutrition, I thought there's no way this could taste good. I'm somebody who loves bread, but because I really love the way I feel on low-carb diets, I stick to the low-carb diet. So I open this bread. It's shaped like a cube which already feels like the future, and uh, I cut a few slices and just ate it for the pure ingredient, just to see what it tastes like, and it was incredible. From my perspective, what you need to know, it's it's keto-friendly, and uh, it tastes delicious. I highly, highly recommend it if you uh, want to eat bread, but want to eat it in a healthy way. Get $10 off the starter bundle that includes two superfood cubes, I guess they're called superfood cubes, (laughs) And uh four packs of the Freedom Chips. Again, the chips are called Freedom Chips. Good marketing. Go to uprisingfood.com slash lex and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's uprisingfood.com slash lex. This show is also brought to you by four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee and plant-based protein. Does the coffee taste like mushrooms, you ask? No, it does not, but it is A big part of my morning ritual. I make the coffee. I'm listening to brown noise now as I think about what I'm going to do in the first deep work session of the day. Calmly walk around, make the coffee, get a glass of water, drink that, then go to the computer and start taking on the day with the aroma of four sigmatic coffee in the air. I feel like Pavlov's dog with the warm cup and the aroma that just switches my brain on that it's now time to get to work. Plus the brown noise is really focusing and uh, I'm ready to take on the day. Those first few hours are in terms of depth, focus, and clarity of thinking are unparalleled for me. Get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles if you go to foursigmatic.com slash Lex. That's foursigmatic.com slash Lex. Speaking of productivity, this episode is also brought to you by Onit, nutrition, supplement, and fitness company. They make AlphaBrain, which is a nootropic that helps support memory, mental speed, and focus. I use it when I need a boost, when I have a difficult deep work sessions coming up, and I really wanna make sure that I go deep, stay there for a while with clarity and focus, I'll take an alpha brain. So it's not like part of my daily ritual, I use it as like a jetpack for the mind. It's not necessarily when my mind is feeling tired, because that a good nap can usually fix. But uh, when it's feeling pretty good, but I just anticipate a really difficult session, that's when I'll take an a alpha brain. Anyway, Go to lexfriedman.com slash onit to get up to 10% off Alpha Brain. That's lexfriedman.com slash onit. This is the Lex Friedman podcast, and here is my conversation with Jay McClelland. You are one of the seminal figures in the history of neural networks at the intersection of uh, cognitive psychology and computer science. What to you has over the decades emerged as the most beautiful aspect about neural networks, both artificial and biological?
1: The fundamental thing I think about with neural networks is how they allow us to link biology with the mysteries of thought. And, um, you know, in the, when I was first entering the field myself in the late sixties, early seventies, cognitive psychology had just become a field. There was a book published in 67 called cognitive psychology. Um, and the author said that, you know, the study of the nervous system was only of peripheral interest it wasn't going to tell us anything about the mind and i didn't agree with that i i always felt oh look i'm i'm a physical being i from dust to dust you know ashes to ashes and somehow i emerged from that
0: um so, so that's really interesting so there was a sense with cognitive psychology that in understanding the sort of neuronal structure of things, you're not going to be able to understand the mind. And then your sense is if we study these neural networks, we might be able to get at least very close to understanding the fundamentals of the human mind.
1: Yeah. I used to think, um, or I used to talk about the idea of awakening from the Cartesian dream. (laughs) So Descartes, you know, thought about these things, right? He he was walking in the gardens of Versailles one day and he stepped on a stone and a statue moved. And he walked a little further, he stepped on another stone and another statue moved. And he like, why did the statue move when I stepped on the stone? And he went and talked to the gardeners and he found out that they had a hydraulic system that allowed the physical contact with the stone to cause water to flow in various directions, which caused water to flow under the statue and move the statue. And he used this as the beginnings of a theory about how animals act. And he had this notion that these little fibers that people had identified that weren't carrying the blood you know, were these little hydraulic tubes that mm. if you touch something, there would be pressure and it would send a signal of pressure to the other parts of the system and that would cause action. So he had a mechanistic theory of animal behavior. And he thought that the human had this animal body, but that some divine something else had to have come down and been placed in him to give him the ability to think, right? So the physical world includes the body in action, but it doesn't include thought, according to Descartes, right? right? And so the study of physiology at that time was the study of sensory systems and motor systems and things that you could directly measure when you stimulated neurons and stuff like that. And... um the study of cognition was something that you know, was tied in with abstract computer algorithms and things like that. But when, when I was an undergraduate, I learned about the physiological mechanisms. Uh, and so when I'm studying cognitive psychology as a first-year PhD student, I'm saying, wait a minute, the whole thing is biological, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you,
0: know. you had that intuition right away. That was seemed obvious to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It, isn't that magical, though, that from just A little bit of biology can emerge the full beauty of the human experience. Why is that so obvious to you?
1: Well, obvious and not obvious at the same time. Um, And I I think about Darwin in this context too, because Darwin knew very early on that none of the ideas that anybody had ever offered gave him a sense of understanding how evolution could have worked. But he wanted to figure out how it could have worked. That was his goal. Mm-hmm. And he spent a lot of time working on this idea and coming, you know, reading about things that gave him hints and thinking they were interesting but not knowing why and drawing more and more pictures of different birds that differ slightly from each other and so on, you know. And, and, and then, then he figured it out. But after he figured it out, he had nightmares about it. He would dream about the complexity of the eye and the arguments that people had given about how ridiculous it was to imagine that that could have ever emerged from some sort of, you know, unguided process. Right. Yeah. That it hadn't been the product of design. And and uh so he he didn't publish for a long time, in part because he was scared of his own ideas. He didn't think they could probably possibly be true. Yeah. Um but then, you know, by the time the 20th century rolls around, we all uh, you know, we understand that evolu- or many people understand or believe that evolution uh produced, you know, the entire uh range of uh animals that there are. Uh, and, uh, you know, Descartes' idea starts to seem a little wonky after a while, right? Like, well, wait a minute. Um, there's the apes and the chimpanzees and the bonobos and, you know, like they're pretty smart in some ways, you know. So what – oh, you know, somebody comes – up, oh, there's a certain part of the brain that's still different. They don't – you know, there's no hippocampus in the – Monkey brain is only in the human brain, and uh Huxley had to do a surgery in front of many, many people in the late nineteenth century to show to them that there's actually a hippocampus in, in the chimpanzee's brain you know so so their continuity of the species is another element uh that you know contributes to um this sort of you know idea that we are ourselves uh total product of nature um and uh that to me is the is the magic and the mystery how how nature could actually um you know give rise to uh organisms that have the uh, capabilities that we have
0: so it's interesting because even the idea of evolution is hard for me to keep all together in my mind so, because we think of a human time scale, mm. it's hard to imagine that, like, like the, the the development of the human eye would give me nightmares too. Mm. Because you have to think across many, many, many generations, and it's very tempting to think about kind of a growth of a complicated object. And it's like, how is it possible for that such such a thing to be built? Because also, me from a robotics engineering perspective, it's very hard to build these systems. How can through an undirected process, can a complex thing be designed? It seems not it seems wrong.
1: Yeah. So that's absolutely right. And I, you know, um, a slightly different career path that would have been equally interesting to me would have would have been um to actually study the process of embryological development flowing on into brain development and yeah. the the um, exquisite sort of laying down of pathways and so on that occurs in the brain, and uh, I know the slightest bit about that. It's not my field, but um, there are, you know, fascinating aspects to this process that eventually result in the, you know, the complexity of of uh, various brains. At, at least, you know, one thing. Um, we're, um, in, in the field, I think people have felt for a long time and it, it, in the study of vision, the continuity between humans and non-human animals has been, has been second nature for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was having, I had this conversation, um, with somebody who's a vision scientist and you're saying, oh, we, we don't have any problem with this. You know, the monkey's visual system and the human visual system, extremely similar. Um, up to certain levels, of course, they, they diverge after a while. But um, the first, the, the visual pathway from the eye to the brain and the first few um, layers of cortex um, or cortical areas, I guess one would say, uh, are, are extremely similar.
0: Yeah. So on the cognition side is where the leap seems to happen with humans. That it does seem we're kind of special, and that's a really interesting question when thinking about alien life or if there's other intelligent alien civilizations out there. Is how special is this leap? So one special thing seems to be the origin of life itself, however you define that. There's a gray area, and the other leap. This is a very biased perspective of a human is the the origin of intelligence, and it, again from an engineer perspective, it's a Difficult question to ask, an important one, is uh, how difficult does that leap? How special were humans? Did uh, did uh, a monolith come down? Did aliens bring down a monolith and some um, uh, apes had to touch a monolith for it to, <laughs> to to get it? It's to a get... lot
1: like Dark Descartes, uh, you know,
0: idea, right? <laughs> exactly. I it's but it just seems that it seems one heck of a leap, yeah, to get to this level of intelligence. Yeah,
1: and you know, so Chomsky um, uh, argued. Um, that, you know, some uh, genetic fluke occurred 100,000 years ago. (laughs) And, you know, just happened that some human, some hominin predecessor of current humans had this one genetic tweak that resulted in language. Yeah. And language then provided this special thing that separates us from all other animals. Um, I'm, I think there's a lot of truth to the value and importance of language, but I think it comes along with um, the evolution of a lot of other related things related to sociality and mutual engagement with others and um, establishment of, um, I don't know, rich mechanisms for organizing an understanding of the world, which language then plugs into.
0: Right. So it's a uh, language is a tool that allows you to do this kind of collective intelligence and whatever is at the core of, the thing that allows for this collective intelligence is the main thing. And it's interesting to think about that one fluke, one mutation could lead to the, like the, the, the first crack open, opening of the door to human intelligence. Like all it takes is one. Like evolution just kind of opens the door a little bit and then the time and selection takes care of the rest.
1: You know, there's so many fascinating aspects to these kinds of things. So. W- we think of evolution as continuous, right? We think, oh, yes, okay, over 500 million years, there could have been this, you know, relatively continuous uh, changes. And, um, But that's not what anthropologists, evolutionary biologists found from the fossil record. They found, you know hundreds of years of, uh, hundreds of millions of years of stasis. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, suddenly a change occurs. Well, suddenly on that scale is a million years yeah. or something, but, but st- or even 10 million years. But, but um, the concept of punctuated equilibrium was a, a very important concept in evolutionary biology. Uh, and uh, that also feels somehow right about you know the stages of our mental abilities we we seem to have a certain kind of mindset at a certain age and then at another another age we like look at that 4-year-old and say oh my god how could they have thought that way so piaget was known for this kind of stage theory of child development right and you look at it closely and suddenly those stages aren't so discrete and the transitions but the difference between the 4-year-old and the 7-year-old is profound and that's another thing that's always interested me is how we something happens over the course of several years of experience where at some point we reach the point where something like an insight or a transition or a new stage of development occurs and uh uh you know, these kinds of things can be understood um, in complex systems uh, research. And so um, evolutionary biology, developmental biology, um, cognitive development are all things that have been approached in this kind of a way.
0: Yeah. Just like you said, I find both fascinating those early years of human life, but also the early like minutes, days of, from the embryonic development to like how from embryos you get like the brain, that development, again, from the engineering perspective, is fascinating. So it's not, so the early, um, when you deploy the brain to the human world and it gets to explore that world and learn, that's fascinating. But just like the assembly of the mechanism that is capable of learning, that's like amazing. The stuff they're doing with like brain organoids, where you can, build many brains and study that um, self-assembly of a mechanism from like the DNA material. That That's like, mm. what the heck? Mm. <laughs> you have literally like uh, biological programs that just generate a system, this mushy thing that's able to be robust and learn in a very unpredictable world and learn seemingly arbitrary things or like a very large number of things that enable survival.
1: Yeah. Ultimately, um that is a very important part of the whole process of, you know, understanding this sort of emergence of mind from brain kind of kind of thing.
0: <laughs> and the whole thing seems to be pretty continuous. So, let me uh let me step back to neural networks for for, for another brief minute, you wrote parallel distributed processing books that explored ideas of neural networks in the 1980s, together with a few folks. But the books you wrote with uh, David uh, Rommel Hart, who is the first author on the back propagation paper, with Jeff Hinton. So these are just some figures at the time that were thinking about these big ideas. Uh, what are some memorable moments of discovery and beautiful ideas from those early days? I'm going to start uh,
1: sort of with my own process in the Mm mid-'70s and then into the late-'70s when I met Jeff Hinson and uh, he came to San Diego and we were all together. Um, In my time in graduate school, as I've already described to you, I had this sort of feeling of, okay, I'm really interested in human cognition, but this disembodied sort of way of thinking about it that I'm getting from the current mode of thought about it is, isn't working fully for me. And when I got my assistant professorship, I went to UCSD, and um, that was in 1974. Something amazing had just happened. Dave Rumelhart had written a book together with another man named Don Norman. And the book was called Explorations in Cognition. And it was a, a series of chapters exploring interesting questions about cognition, but in a completely sort of abstract, you know, non-biological kind of way. And I'm saying, gee, this is amazing. I'm coming to this community where people can get together and feel like they've collectively exploring, you know, ideas. And um, it was a book that had a lot of, I don't know, lightness to it. And, you know, the the Don Norman, who was the, the more senior figure to Rummelhart at that time, who led that project, um, you know, cre- always created this spirit of playful exploration of ideas. And so I'm like, wow, this is great. But I was also, you know, still trying to get from the neurons to the to the cognition. And I realized at one point, I, I, I got this opportunity to go to a conference where I heard a talk by a man named James Anderson, who was an engineer, but by then a professor in a psychology department who had used linear algebra... To create neural network models of perception and categorization and memory. And I just blew me out of the water that one could, you know, create a model that was simulating neurons, not just kind of engaged in a stepwise algorithmic process that was construed abstractly. But it was. Simulating, remembering, and recalling, and um, recognizing the prior occurrence of a stimulus, or something like that. So for me, this was a bridge between the mind and the brain. And I just like and I. I remember I was walking across campus one day in 1977, and I almost felt like Saint Paul on the road to Damascus. I said to myself, "You know, if I think about the mind." in terms of a neural network, it will help me answer the questions about the mind that I'm trying to answer. And that really excited me. So I think that a lot of people were becoming excited about that. And one of those people was Jim Anderson, who I had mentioned. Another one was Steve Grossberg, who had been uh, writing about neural networks since the 60s. And Jeff Hinton was yet another. And his PhD dissertation showed up uh, in an applicant pool to a postdoctoral training program that Dave and Don, the two men I mentioned before, Rummelhart and and Norman, were administering. And Rummelhart got really excited about Hinton's PhD dissertation. Um, And so... Uh, Hinton was one of the first um, people who came and joined this group of postdoctoral scholars uh, that uh, was funded by this this wonderful grant that they got. Another one who is also well known in neural network circus uh, circles is Paul Smolensky. He was another one of that group. Anyway, um, Jeff and Jim Anderson organized a conference at UCSD. Uh, where we we were. And uh, it was called Parallel Models of Associative Memory, and it brought all the people together who had been thinking about these kinds of ideas in 1979 or 1980. And this this began to kind of really resonate with some of Rommel Hart's um, own thinking, some of his reasons for wanting something other than the kinds of computation he'd been doing so far. So let me talk about Ronald Hart now for Mm -hmm. a minute. Okay, with that context.
0: Well, let me also just pause because he said so many interesting things before we go to Ronald Hart. So first of all, for people who are not familiar, uh, neural networks are at the core of the machine learning, deep learning revolution of today. Uh, Jeffrey Hinton that we mentioned is one of the figures that were important in the history, like yourself in the development of these neural networks, artificial neural networks that are then used for the machine learning application. Like I mentioned, the back propagation paper is one of the optimization mechanisms by which these uh, networks c- uh, can learn. And uh, the word parallel is really interesting. So it's, it's almost like synonymous from a computational perspective, what, how you thought at the time about neural networks. It's parallel computation. Is that yeah. would that would that be fair to say?
1: Well, yeah, the, the the parallel, the word parallel in this, you know, comes from the idea that each neuron is an independent computational unit, right? It mm-hmm. it gathers data from other neurons, it integrates it in a certain way, and then it produces a result. And it's a very simple little computational unit but it it's autonomous in the sense that <clears throat> you know it does its thing right it's it's in a biological medium where it's getting nutrients and various uh chemicals from that medium um but it's uh you know you can think of it as almost like a little little computer in and of itself so the idea is that each you know our brains have Oh, look, you know, a hundred or hundreds, almost a billion of these little neurons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they're all capable of doing their work at the same time. So it's like, instead of just a single central processor that's engaged in, you know, chug, chug one step after another, we have a billion of these little computational units working at the same time.
0: So at the time, that's I don't know, maybe you can comment, it seems to me, even still to me, uh, quite a revolutionary way to think about computation relative to the development of theoretical computer science alongside of that, where it's very much like sequential computer. You're analyzing algorithms that are running on a single computer. That's right. You're saying, wait a minute, what, what, why don't we take a really dumb, very simple computer and just have a lot of them interconnected together and they're all operating in their own little world and they're communicating Mm -hmm. with each other and and thinking of computation in that way. And from that kind of computation, trying to understand how things like certain characteristics of the human mind can emerge. That's quite a revolutionary way of thinking, I would say.
1: Well, yes, I agree with you. And um, there's still this sort of sense of not sort of knowing how we kind of get all the way there, um, I think. And this very much remains at the core of the questions that everybody's asking about the capabilities of deep learning and all these kinds of things. But if I could just play this out a little bit. Mm Um, a, a convolutional neural network or a CNN, which, you know, many people may have heard of, is a set of, you could think of it biologically as a set of collections of neurons. Each one had, each collection has maybe 10,000 neurons in it. Uh, but there's many layers right some of these things are hundreds or even a thousand layers deep but others are closer to the biological brain and maybe they're like 20 layers deep or something like that so we have within each layer we have thousands of neurons or tens of thousands maybe well in the brain we probably have millions in each layer so but we're getting sort of similar in a certain way right Um, and then we think okay at the bottom level there's an array of things that are like the photoreceptors in the the eye they respond to the amount of light of a certain wavelength at a certain location on the on the pixel array so that's like the biological eye and then there's several further stages going up layers of these neuron like units and um, you go from that raw input, array of pixels, to a classification, you've actually built a system that could do the same kind of thing that you and I do when we open our eyes and we look around and we see there's a cup, there's a cell phone, there's a water bottle, (laughs) and these systems are doing that now, right? (laughs) So they are, in, in terms of the parallel idea that we were talking about before, They are doing this massively parallel computation in the sense that each of the neurons in each of those layers is thought of as computing its little bit of something about the input uh, simultaneously with all the other ones in the same layer. We get to the point of abstracting that away and thinking, oh, it's just one whole vector that's being computed, one one activation pattern that's computed in a single step. And that, that, that abstraction is useful, uh, but it's still that parallel and distributed processing, right? Each one of these guys is just contributing a tiny bit to that whole thing.
0: And that's the excitement that you felt that from these simple... Things you c- can emerge th- when you add these level of abstractions on it. Yeah. You you can start getting all the beautiful things that we think about as cognition. Right. And so, okay, so you have this uh, conference. I forgot the name already, but it's parallel and something associated with memory and so on. <laughs> very exciting, technical and exciting title. And uh, you started talking about uh, Dave Romahart. So who is this person that yes. was so, uh, you've spoken very highly of him. Yeah. Can you tell me about him? his ideas, his mind, uh, who he was as a human being, as a scientist. So,
1: Dave came from a little tiny town in western South Dakota. And uh, his mother was the librarian and his father was the editor of the newspaper. Um, And uh, I know one of his brothers pretty well. Um, They grew up, there were four brothers uh and uh they grew up together uh and their father encouraged them to compete with each other a lot <laughs> uh, they competed in sports and they competed in mind games mm-hmm. you know um i don't know things like sudoku and chess and like various it. things like that mm-hmm. and uh dave um was uh a standout undergraduate he went uh as at a younger age than most people do to college at the University of South Dakota and majored in mathematics. And I don't know how he got interested in psychology, but he um, applied to the mathematical psychology program at Stanford and was accepted as a PhD student to study mathematical psychology at Stanford. So mathematical psychology uh, is the use of mathematics to model mental processes,
0: right? So something that I think these days might be called cognitive modeling, that whole space.
1: Yeah, it's mathematical in the sense that um, you say, if this is true and that is true, then I can derive that this should follow, okay? Mm-hmm. And so you say, these are my stipulations about the fundamental principles, and this is my prediction about behavior, and it's all done with equations. It's not done with a computer simulation, mm-hmm. right? So the, the, you you solve the equation, and that tells you what the probability that the subject will be correct on the seventh trial of the experiment is, or something like that, right? So it's a it's a it's a it's a use of mathematics to descriptively characterize uh, aspects of, of behavior. And uh, Stanford at that time was the place where. Uh, there were several really, really strong mathematical thinkers who were also connected with three or four others around the country, who um, you know brought a lot of really exciting ideas uh, onto the table, and it was a very, very prestigious part of the field of psychology at that time. So Rummelhart comes into this; um, he was a very strong student within that program, uh, and. Uh he got this job at this brand new university in San Diego in 1967, where he's one of the first assistant professors in the Department of Psychology uh, at UCSD. So I got there in 74, seven years later, and Runghardt at that time was – still doing mathematical modeling, Um, but he had gotten interested in cognition, he'd gotten interested in understanding, and, you know, understanding, I think, remains, you know, what does it mean to understand anyway, (laughs) you know? Uh, it's it's an interesting sort of curious, you know, like, how would we know if we really understood something? But but he was interested in building machines that would, you know, hear a couple of sentences and have an insight about what was going on. So, for example, one of his favorite things at that time was, um, Margie was sitting on the front step when she heard the familiar jingle of the good humor man. She remembered her birthday money and ran into the house. What is Margie doing? <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, there's a couple of ideas you could have, but the most natural one is that the good humor man brings ice cream. She likes ice cream. She's, she knows she needs money to buy ice cream, so she's going to run into the house and get her money so she can buy herself an ice cream. Mm-hmm. It's a huge amount of inference that has to happen to get those things to link up with each other. And, and he was interested in how the hell that could happen and he was trying to build um you know good old-fashioned AI style uh, models of representation of language and and content of you know things like
0: has money (laughs) so like a lot or like formal logic and like knowledge bases like that kind of stuff yeah so he was integrating that with his thinking about cognition yes the mechanisms cognition how can they like mechanistically be applied to build these knowledge like to actually build something that looks like a web of knowledge and thereby from from there emerges something like understanding whatever the heck that is
1: yeah. That's he was grappling. This was something that they grappled with at the end of that book that I was describing, Explorations in Cognition. Mm-hmm. But he was realizing that the paradigm of good old fashioned AI wasn't giving him the answers to these questions. Yeah.
0: And by the way, that's called good old fashioned AI. Now it wasn't called that. <laughs> at the well, time. it was. It was beginning to be called that. Uh, oh, because it was from the sixties. Yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah. By
1: by by the late seventies, it was kind of old fashioned, and it hadn't really panned out. You know, and people were beginning to recognize that. But uh, and and Rumelhart was, you know, like yeah, he was part of the recognition that this wasn't all working. Anyway, so he um, started thinking in terms of. Uh, the idea that we needed systems that allowed us to integrate multiple simultaneous constraints in a way that would be mutually influencing each other. So um, he wrote a paper that just really, first time I read it, I thought, Oh, well, you know, yeah, but is this important? But after a while, it just got under my skin and it, it was called an interactive model of reading. And in this paper, he laid out the idea that every aspect of our interpretation of what, what's coming off the page when we read at every level of analysis you can think of actually depends on all the other levels of analysis. So, what are the actual pixels making up each letter? And what do those pixels signify about which letters they are? And what do those letters tell us about what words are there? And what do those words tell us about what ideas the author is trying to convey and so he had this model where, you know, we have these little tiny uh, elements that represent each of the pixels of each of the letters, and then other ones that represent the line segments in them, and other ones that represent the letters, and other ones that represent the words. And um, at that time, his idea was there's this set of experts. There's an expert about how to. Construct a line out of pixels, and another expert about how which sets of lines go together to make which letters, and another one about which letters go together to make which words, and another one about what the meanings of the words are, and another one about how the meanings fit together, and you know things like that. And all these experts are looking at this data, and they're they're um, updating hypotheses at. At other levels. So the word expert can tell the letter expert, oh, I think there should be a T there because I think there should be a word the here. And the bottom up sort of feature to letter expert could say, I think there should be a T there too. And if they agree, then you see a T, right? And so this is a top down, bottom up interactive process. But it's going on at all layers simultaneously, so everything can filter all the way down from the top as well as all the way up from the bottom, and it's a completely interactive, bidirectional, parallel, distributed process.
0: That okay? is somehow because of the abstractions is hierarchical. So, like, yeah. So there's different layers of responsibilities, different levels of responsibilities. First of all, it's fascinating to think about it in this kind of mechanistic way. So, not thinking purely. From the structure of a neural network, or something like a neural network, but thinking about these little little guys that work on letters, and then the letters come <laughs> words, and words become sentences, yeah. and and uh, th- that's a very interesting hypothesis that from that kind of hierarchical structure can emerge uh, uh, understanding.
1: Yeah. So, but the thing is, though, I want to just sort of relate this to the earlier part of the conversation. Sure. Um, when Rommelhart was first thinking about it, there were these experts on the side, one for the features and one for the letters and one for how the letters make the words and so on. And and they would each be working sort of evaluating various propositions about, you know, is this combination of features here going to be one that looks like the letter T and so on. and And what he realized kind of after reading Hinton's dissertation and hearing about Jim Anderson's um, linear algebra-based neural network models that I was telling you about before was that he could replace those experts with neuron-like processing units, which just would have their connection weights that would do this job. So So, what ended up happening was that Rommel Hart and I got together and we created a model called the Interactive Activation Model of Letter Perception, uh-huh. which is takes these little pixel-level uh, inputs, constructs uh, line segment features, letters, and words, but now we built it out of a set of neuron-like processing units that are just connected to each other with connection weights. So the unit for the word time has a connection to the unit for the letter T in the first position and the letter I in the second position, so on. And because these connections are bidirectional, if you have prior knowledge that it might be the word time, that starts to prime the feature to the letters and the features. And if you don't, then it's it has to start bottom up. But the directionality just depends on where the information comes in first. And it, and if you have context together with features at the same time, they can convergently result in an emergent perception. And that um that was the um the piece of work that we did together that uh sort of got us both completely convinced that, you know, this neural network way of thinking was going to be able to actually address the questions that we were interested in as cognitive psychologists.
0: So the algorithmic side, the optimization side, those are all details like when you first start the idea that you can get far with this kind of way of thinking, that in itself is a profound idea. So do you like the term uh, connectionism uh, to describe this kind of set of ideas?
1: I think it's useful highlights the notion that the knowledge that the system exploits is in the connections between the units, right? There isn't a separate dictionary. There's Mm -hmm. just the connections between the units. So I already sort of laid that on the table with the connections from the letter units to the unit for the word time. right? The unit for the word time isn't a unit for the word time for any other reason than it's got the connections to the letters that make up the word time. Those are the units on the input that excite it when it's excited that it, it in a sense, represents in the system that there's support for the hypothesis that the word time is present in the input. Um, But it's not there, there's, the word time isn't written anywhere inside the model. It's only written there in the picture we drew of the model to say that's the unit for the word time, right? Yeah. And, and um, if if you if somebody wants to tell me, well, what are the how do you spell that word? You have to use the connections from that out to 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 then get those letters. For example,
0: that's such a that's a counterintuitive idea. Mm-hmm. We humans want to think in this logic way. Hmm. this this idea of, uh, of connectionism, it doesn't, it's weird. It's weird that this is how it all works. Yeah.
1: But let's go back to that CNN, right? That CNN with all those layers of neuron-like processing units that we were talking about before, it's going to come out and say, this is a cat, that's a dog. But it has no idea why it said that. It's just got all these connections between all these layers of neurons, like right? From the very first layer to the you know the uh, like whatever these layers are they just get numbered after a while because they you know they 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 somehow further in you go the more the more abstract the features are but it's a graded and continuous sort of process of abstraction mm-hmm. anyway and you know it goes from very local very very specific to much more sort of global but it's still you know, another sort of pattern of activation over an array of units. And then at the output side, it says it's a cat or it's a dog. And when, when, we, when I open my eyes and say, oh, that's Lex, mm-hmm. or, um, oh, you know, there's my own dog, and I recognize my dog, mm-hmm. uh, which is a member of the same species as many other dogs, but I know this one because of some <laughs> slightly unique characteristics. I don't know how to describe yeah. You know what it is that makes me know that I'm looking at Lex or at my particular dog, right? Yeah. Or even that I'm looking at a particular brand of car. Like I could say a few words about it, but if I, get, I wrote you a paragraph about the car, you you would have trouble figuring out well, which car is he talking yeah. about, right? So the idea that we have propositional knowledge of what it is that allows us to recognize that this is an actual instance of this particular natural kind is, um, has always been, you know, something that, uh, it, it never worked, right? You couldn't ever write down a set of propositions for, you know, visual recognition. And, and, and so it, in that space, it sort of always seemed very natural that something more implicit, um, you know, you, you don't have access to what the details of the computation were in between, you just get the result. So that's the other part of connectionism. You cannot, you don't read the contents of the connections. The connections only cause outputs to occur based on inputs.
0: Yeah. And for us, that like final layer or some particular layer is very important. The one that tells us that it's our dog or like it's a cat or a dog. But, you know, each layer is probably equally as important in the grand scheme of things. Like <laughs> there's no reason why the cat versus dog is more important than the lower level activations. It doesn't really matter. I mean, all of it is just this beautiful stacking on top of each other. And we humans live in this particular layers so for us. For us, it's useful to to survive, to to use those uh, uh, cat versus dog, predator versus prey, all those kinds of things. It's fascinating that it's all continuous, but then you you then ask, you know, the history of artificial intelligence, you ask, are we able to introspect and convert the very things that allow us to tell the difference to cat and dog into uh, logic, into formal logic? That's been the dream. I would say that's still part of the, the dream of symbolic AI. And um, I've, I've recently talked to uh, Doug uh, Leonard, who created Psych. And that's that's a project that lasted for many decades and still carries a sort of dream in it, mm. right? But um, we still don't know the answer, right? It seems like uh, connectionism is really powerful, but it also seems like there's this building of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we, how do you square those two? Like, do you think the connections can contain the depth of human knowledge and the depth of what uh, Dave Rommelhart was thinking about of understanding?
1: Well, uh, that remains the $64 question
0: and um I with inflation uh, <laughs> that number's <is> higher. <laughs> <Okay>, $64,000. <000. laughs> Maybe it's the $64 billion yeah. question now. Uh uh
1: you know, I think that um from the emergentist side, which, you know, uh I place myself on, um so I, I I used to sometimes tell people I was a radical eliminative connectionist because I didn't want them to think that I wanted to build like anything into the machine. But um, I don't like the word eliminative uh, anymore because it makes it seem like it's wrong to think that there is this emergent level of understanding, and um, I disagree with that. So I think you know I would call myself an a radical emergentist uh, connectionist rather than eliminative connectionist, right? Because I want to acknowledge that uh, that these higher level kinds of aspects of our cognition are are real, but they're not. They're, they don't. They don't exist as such. And so, there was an example that uh, Doug Hofstetter used to use that I thought was helpful in this respect. Just the idea that we can think about sand dunes as entities and talk about like how many there are, even. Um, but we also know that a sand dune is a, a very fluid thing. It's 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 a it's a, it's, a, it's a pile of sand that is capable of moving around under the wind and the and and um, you know, reforming itself in somewhat different ways. And and if we think about our thoughts as like sand dunes as being things that you know emerge from, uh, just the the way all the lower level elements sort of work together and and are constrained by external forces then we can we can say yes they exist as such but they they also you know we shouldn't treat them as completely monolithic entities that we we can understand without understanding sort of all of the stuff that allows them to change in the ways that they do and that's where i think the connectionist feeds into the into the cognitive it's like okay so if the under if the substrate is parallel distributed connectionist um then it doesn't mean that the contents of thought isn't you know like abstract and symbolic and um but it's more fluid maybe Mm than uh is easier to capture with a set of logical expressions
0: yeah that's a heck of a sort of thing to put at the top of a, of a resume radical emergent connectionist <laughs> so I, there is just like you said a beautiful dance between that between the machinery of intelligence like the neural network side of it and the stuff that emerges i mean the stuff that emerges seems to be um i don't know i don't know what that is that it seems like maybe all of reality is emergent what i what i think about this is made most distinctly rich to me when i look at cellular automata look at game of life mm. that from very very simple things very rich complex things emerge that start looking very quickly like organisms mm-hmm. that you forget that the to forget how the actual thing operates. They start looking like they're moving around, they're eating each other, some of them are generating offspring. It, it You forget very quickly. And it seems like maybe it's something about the human mind that wants to operate in some layer of the emergent and forget about the the mechanism of how that emergence happens. So I, it just like you are in your radicalness. I'm uh, also, it seems like unfair to eliminate the magic of that emergent like eliminate the the fact that that the emergent is real <laughs> yeah no
1: i agree i'm not that's why i got rid of eliminative right eliminative, yeah yeah because it seemed like that was trying to say that you know it's all completely
0: like an illusion of some kind It's not. well
1: it it you know who knows whether there isn't there aren't some illusory characteristics there um and and I think that uh, philosophically, um, many people have have confronted that possibility over time. But but uh, it it's still important to um, you know accept it as magic, right? So you know I think of Fellini in this context. I think of um, others who have appreciated uh, the role of magic. Uh, of actual trickery in creating illusions that, that move, that move us. You know, and Plato was to this too. It's like somehow or other, these shadows, you know, give rise to something much deeper than that. and, And that's, that's so, you know, we won't try to figure out what it is. We'll just accept it as given that, that that occurs. And, um, you know, but he was still onto the magic of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We we won't try to really really, really deeply understand how it works. We just enjoy the fact that it's kind of fun. Okay, but you uh worked closely with Dave, uh Ramahart. Uh he passed away as a human being. What do you remember about him? Do you miss the guy?
1: Absolutely. Um you know, he passed away um 15ish years ago now and um his his demise was actually one of the most poignant and um you know uh, like relevant uh tragedies um relevant to our conversation he started to Undergo a progressive neurological condition that um, isn't fully understood. That is to say, his particular course isn't fully understood um, because certain, you know, brain scans weren't done at certain stages, uh, and no autopsy was done or anything like that. The wishes of the family. Um, So we don't know as much about the underlying pathology as we might, but um, I had begun to get interested in this neurological condition that might have been the very one that he was succumbing to as my own efforts to uh, understand another aspect of this mystery that we've been discussing while he was beginning to get progressively more and more affected. So I'm gonna talk about the disorder and not about Rummelhart for a second, okay? Sure, the disorder is something my colleagues and collaborators have chosen to call um, semantic dementia. So it's a specific form of loss of mind related to meaning, semantic dementia. And it's progressive, in the sense that the patient um, loses the ability to appreciate the meaning of the experiences that they have, either from touch, from sight, from sound, f- from language. They, I hear sounds, but I don't know what they mean kind of thing. Um, the So... As, as this illness progresses, it starts with the patient being unable to um, differentiate like similar breeds of dog or mm-hmm. uh, remember, you know, the, the lower frequency unfamiliar categories that they used mm-hmm. to be able to remember. Um, but as it progresses it becomes more and more striking and, and, you know, the, the patient loses the ability to recognize, um, you know, things like pigs and goats and sheep and calls all middle-sized animals, dogs and all can't recognize rabbits and, and, and rodents anymore. They call all the, Little ones, cats, and they can't recognize hippopotamuses and and cows anymore. They call them all horses, you know. So there was this one patient who went through this progression where, uh, at a certain point, any four-legged animal he would call it either a horse or a dog or a cat. And if it was big, he would tend to call it a horse. Mm-hmm. If it was small, he'd tend to call it a cat. Middle-sized ones, he called dogs. Mm-hmm. This is just a part of the syndrome though. It, it, the, the patient loses the ability to relate uh, concepts to each other. So my, my collaborator in this work, Carolyn Patterson, developed a test called the Pyramids and Palm Trees Test. So you give the patient a picture of pyramids and they have a choice. Which goes with the pyramids? Palm trees or pine trees? and you know she showed that this wasn't just a matter of language because the patient's loss of this ability shows up whether you present the material with words or with pictures the pictures they can't put the pictures together with each other properly anymore they can't relate the pictures to the words either they can't do word picture matching but they've lost the conceptual grounding from either modality of input and um so it's that's why it's called semantic dementia the very semantics is disintegrating and and we we understand this in terms of our idea that distributed representation a pattern of activation represents the concepts really similar ones as you degrade them they start being you lose the differences and and then um so the difference between the dog and the goat sort of is no longer part of the pattern anymore. And since dog is really familiar, that's the thing that remains. And and we understand that in the way the models work and learn. But but Rommelhart underwent this, this condition. Uh so on the one hand, it's a fascinating aspect of parallel distributed processing to be, uh, and it it reveals this uh this sort of texture of distributed representation in a, in a very nice way, I've always felt. But at the same time, it was extremely poignant because this is exactly the condition that Rommel Hart was undergoing. And there was a period of time when he was this man who had been the most focused, um, goal-directed, competitive <laughs> um, thoughtful person who was willing to work for years to solve a hard problem, you know, he's, he's, he, 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 he starts to disappear. And um, there was a period of time when it was like hard for any of us to really appreciate that he was sort of, in some sense, not fully there anymore.
0: Do you know if he was able to introspect this um dissolution of this you know the, the understanding mind was he i mean this is one of the big scientists that thinks about this yeah was he able to look at himself and understand the fading mind
1: you know um we can t- we can contrast um Hawking and Rommelhart in this way, and I I, I like to do that to honor Rommelhart because I think Rommelhart is sort of like the Hawking of cognitive science to me in some ways. Um, Both of them suffered from a degenerative condition. In in Hawking's case, it affected the motor system. Mm -hmm. In in Rommelhart's case, it's it's affecting the semantics. Uh, And um, not not just the pure uh, object semantics but maybe the self semantics as well and we don't understand that mm,
0: concepts as, broadly
1: but 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 it's so i would say uh he didn't and this was part of what from the outside was a profound tragedy but but on the other hand at a some level he sort of did because you know there was a period of time when it finally was realized that he had really become profoundly impaired. This was clearly a biological condition and he wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like he was distracted that day or something like that. So he retired, uh, you know, from his professorship at Stanford and he became, um, he, he, uh, lived with his brother for a couple of years. And then he moved into a, a facility for people with, um, Cognitive impairments, um, a a one that, you know, many elderly people end up in when they have cognitive impairments. And I would spend time with him during that period. This was like in the late nineties, around 2000 even. And, you know, I would, we would go bowling and he could still bowl, uh, and, um, I, after bowling, I took him to lunch and I, I said, where would you like to go? You want to go to Wendy's? And he said, nah. And I said, okay, well, where do you want to go? And he, he just pointed, he said, turn here, you know? So he still had a certain amount of spatial cognition and he could get me to the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And then when we got to the restaurant, I, I said, what do you want to order? And, um, he couldn't. Come up with any of the words, but he knew where on the menu the thing was that he wanted. So, that's
0: so fascinating. it's
1: it you know, and and <laughs> he couldn't say what it was, but he knew that that's what he wanted to eat. <laughs> and and so there was you know that it's 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 like it isn't monolithic at all. This, the, our cognition is is you know, first of all, graded in certain kinds of ways, but also multipartite and there's many elements to it and things uh, certain sort of partial competencies still exist in the absence of of other aspects of these competencies. Um, so this is what always fascinated me about what uh, used to be called cognitive neuropsychology, um, you know, the effects of brain damage on cognition. Uh, but in particular this gradual disintegration part
0: you know i'm i'm a big believer that the loss of uh, a human being that you value is as powerful as you know first falling in love with that human being i i think it's all a celebration of the human being so it, the disintegration itself too is a celebration yeah. in a way
1: yeah yeah and but just to say something more about the scientist and, and the back-propagation idea that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in 1982, Hinton had been there as a postdoc and organized that conference. He'd actually gone away and gotten an assistant professorship, and then um, there was this opportunity to bring him back. So Jeff Hinton was back uh, on a sabbatical. San Diego. In San Diego. And uh, Rummelhart and I had decided we wanted to do this. You know, we thought it was really exciting, and um, our the papers on the interactive activation model that I was telling you about had just been published, and we both sort of saw huge potential for this work. and And, and Jeff was there, and so the three of us uh, started a, a research group, which we called the PDP Research Group, mm-hmm. and uh, several other people. Came. Um, Francis Crick, who was at the Salk Institute, heard about it from Jeff. um, And uh, because Jeff was known among Brits to be brilliant and Francis was well connected with his British friends. So Francis Crick came.
0: It's a heck uh, of a group of people. Wow. And
1: uh, uh, several, as Paul Spolensky um, was one of the other postdocs. He was still there as a postdoc. And um, a few other people. But uh, anyway, Jeff talked to us about learning and how we should think about how you know learning occurs in a neural network. And he said, the problem with the way you guys have been approaching this is that you've been looking for inspiration from biology to tell you how what the rules should be for how the synapses should change the strengths of their connections, how the connections should form. He said, that's the wrong way to go about it. What you should do is you should think in terms of how you can adjust connection weights to solve a problem. So you define your problem, and then you figure out how the adjustment of the connection weights will solve the problem. And Rommelhart heard that and said to himself, okay, so I'm going to start thinking about it that way. I'm going to essentially uh, imagine that I have some objective function, some goal of the computation. I want my machine to correctly classify all of these images uh, and I can score that. I can measure how well they're doing on each image. And I get some measure of lo- error or loss, it's typically called in, in deep learning. And um, I'm going to figure out how to adjust the connection weight so as to minimize my loss or reduce the error. Uh, and that's called you know, gradient descent. And... Uh, Engineers were already uh, familiar with the concept of gradient descent, uh, and in fact, um, there was an algorithm called the delta rule um, that had been invented by uh, a professor in the engineering de- electrical engineering department at Stanford, uh, Widrow Bernie Widrow and a collaborator named Hoff. I don't never met him. Anyway, so so gradient descent. In continuous neural networks with multiple neuron-like processing units, was already understood. Um, uh, for a single layer of connection weights, we have some inputs over a set of neurons. We want the output to produce a certain pattern. We can define the difference between our target and what the neural network is producing, and we can figure out how to change the connection weights to reduce that error. So what? Rommelhard did was to generalize that so as to be able to change the connections from earlier layers of units to the ones at a hidden layer between the input and the output. And so he first called the algorithm the generalized delta rule because it's just an extension of the gradient descent idea. And interestingly enough, Hinton was thinking that this wasn't going to work very well so Hinton had his own alternative algorithm at the time mm-hmm. based on uh, the concept of the Bolson machine that mm-hmm. he was pursuing. So the paper on the Bolson machine came out in, learning in Bolson machines came out in 1985, but it turned out that Backprop worked better than the Bolson machine learning algorithm. Um, so
0: this generalized Delta algorithm ended up being called Backprop? propagation as you say back prop
1: yeah and the you know probably that name is opaque to me maybe what what does that mean what it what it meant was that in order to figure out what the changes you needed to make to the connections from the input to the hidden layer you had to back propagate the error signals from the output layer through the connections from the hidden layer to the output to get the signals that would be the error signals for the hidden layer. And that's how Rummelhart formulated it. It was like, well, we know what the error signals are at the output layer. Let's see if we can get a signal at the hidden layer that tells each hidden unit what its error signal is, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's back propagating through the connections from the hidden to the output to get the signals to tell the hidden units how to change their weights from the input. And that's why it's called backprop. Yeah. But uh, so it, it came from Hinton having introduced the concept of, you know, define your objective function, figure out how to take the derivative so that you can um, adjust the connections so that they make progress towards your goal.
0: So stop thinking about biology for a second and let's start to think about optimization and computation Yeah, uh, a little bit more. So w- what about Jeff Hinton? What, um, you've gotten a chance to work with him in that little, <laughs> the set of people involved there is quite incredible. The small set of people under the the PDP flag it's just given the amount of impact those ideas have had over the years, it's kind of incredible to think about. But, you know, just like you said, uh, like yourself, Jeffrey Hinton is seen as one of the, not just like a seminal figure in AI, but just a brilliant person. Just a like the horsepower of the mind is pretty high up there for him because he, he's just a great thinker. So what kind of ideas have you, um, Learn from him. Have you influenced each other on? Have you debated over? It? What stands out to you in in the in the full space of ideas here at the intersection of computation and cognition?
1: Well, so um, Jeff has said many things to me that had a profound impact on my thinking, um, and he's written several articles which um, uh, were way ahead of their time. Um, he uh, he had two papers in 1981, just to give one example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, one of which was essentially the uh, idea of transformers, uh, and another of which uh, was a uh, early paper on semantic cognition, which inspired uh, him and Rommel Hart and me uh throughout the eighties and uh um, you know still uh, I think sort of grounds my own thinking about um, the semantic aspects of of cognition um, he also <laughs> Uh, in a in a small paper that was never published that he wrote in 1977 you know before he actually arrived at UCSD or maybe a couple of years even before that I don't know uh, when he was a phd student he he um, described how a neural network could uh, do recursive computation
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um was uh, it was a very clever idea that he's continued to explore over time, which was sort of the idea that um, when you when you call a subroutine, you need to save the state that you had when you called it so you can get back to where you were when you're finished with the subroutine. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea was that you would save the state of the calling routine by making fast changes to connection weights. And then when you finished with the subroutine call, those fast changes in the connection weights would allow you to go back to where you had been before and reinstate the previous context so that you could continue on with the the, the top level of the computation. Anyway, that was part of the idea. And um, I always thought, okay, that's really, you know, you just... He had extremely creative ideas that were uh, quite a lot ahead of his time, and many of them in the 1970s and early early 1980s. Um, so uh, another thing about Jeff Hinton's way of thinking, which um, has profoundly influenced my um, uh, effort to understand human mathematical cognition, is that he doesn't write too many equations and uh, people tell stories like oh in in the Hinton lab meetings you don't get up at the board and write equations like you do in everybody else's machine learning lab mm-hmm. what you do is you draw a picture <laughs> and and you know he he explains aspects of the way deep learning works by putting his hands together and showing you the shape of a ravine and um using that as a, a geometrical metaphor for the what's happening as this gradient descent process. You're coming down the wall of a ravine. If you take too big a jump, you're going to jump to the other side. And um, so that's why we have to turn down the learning rate, uh, for example. Um, and it, it um, speaks to me of the uh, fundamentally intuitive character of Uh, deep insight together with um, a commitment to really understanding um, in a way that's absolutely ultimately explicit and clear, uh, but also intuitive.
0: Yeah, there's certain people like that. Here's an example, some kind of weird mix of uh, visual and intuitive and all those kinds of things. Feynman is another example, different style of thinking, but very unique. And when, you, when you're when you around those people, for me in the engineering realm, uh, there's a guy named Jim Keller, who is a chip designer engineer. He, Every time I talk to him, it doesn't matter what we're talking about, just having experienced that unique way of thinking transforms you and makes your work much better. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the magic. You look at Daniel Kahneman, you look at the great collaborations throughout the history of science. That's the magic of that. It's not always the exact ideas that you talk about, but it's the process of generating those ideas, being around that, spending time with that human being. You can come up with some brilliant work, especially when it's cross-disciplinary as it was a little bit in your case yeah. with Jeff.
1: Yeah. Um, Jeff is... Uh a descendant of the logician Mm Boole, He comes from a long line of English academics. And together with the um, deeply intuitive thinking ability that he has, he also um, has, uh, you know, it's been clear. He's he's described this to me, um, and I think he's mentioned it from time to time in other interviews with that he's had with people um you know he's he's wanted to be able to sort of think of himself as contributing to the to the understanding of reasoning itself not just human reasoning like Bool like is about logic right Mm -hmm. it's about what can we conclude from what else and how do we formalize that and um, as a computer scientist, uh, logician, philosopher, you know, um, the goal is to understand how we derive truths from other, from givens and things like this. And and the work that Jeff was doing in the um, early to mid-80s um, on something called the Bolson machine was uh, his way of, connecting with that Boolean tradition and bringing it into the more continuous probabilistic graded constraint satisfaction realm. Um, and it was, it was, um, beautiful, uh, a set of ideas linked with theoretical physics, um, and, um, as well as with logic and, um, it It's always been i mean I've always been inspired by the Bolson machine too it's It's like well, if the neurons are probabilistic rather than you know deterministic in their computations, then you know that that maybe this uh, somehow is part of the um, serendipity or you know. Adventitiousness of the moment of insight, right? That it it might not have occurred at that particular instant. It might be sort of partially the result of a stochastic process, and uh, and and that too is part of the magic of the emergence of uh, some of these things.
0: Well, you're right with the Boolean lineage and the the dream of computer science is uh, somehow. I mean, I certainly think of humans this way—that humans are one particular manifestation of intelligence. That there's something bigger going on, and you're trying to, you're hoping to figure that out. Uh, the mechanisms of intelligence, the mechanisms of cognition, are much bigger than just humans.
1: Yeah. So I think of um, I've I started using the phrase computational intelligence at some point mm-hmm. as to characterize the the field that I thought you know people like Jeff Hinton. Um, and many of the, of the people I know at DeepMind, um, are, are working in and where I, I feel like I'm, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of a human oriented (laughs) computational intelligence researcher in that I'm actually kind of interested in the human solution. But at the same time, I, I, uh, I feel like that's that's where um a huge amount of the the excitement of deep learning actually lies is is in the idea that you know we may be able to even go beyond what we can achieve with our own nervous systems when we build um computational intelligences that are um you know, not limited in the ways that we are by our own biology.
0: Perhaps allowing us to scale the very mechanisms of human intelligence just increase its power through scale.
1: Yes. And, and I think that that, you know, obviously that's the, that's being played out massively at Google brain at open AI and to some extent at DeepMind as well. Um, I guess I shouldn't say, to some extent, Uh, the the, the massive scale of the um, computations that uh, are used to succeed at at games like Go or to solve the protein folding problems that they've been solving and so on.
0: Still not as many uh, synapses and neurons as the human brain. So we still got, (laughs) we're still still beating them on that. We humans are beating the the AIs, but uh, they're catching up pretty quickly. You write about modeling of uh, mathematical cognition, so let me first ask about mathematics in general. Um, I, there, there's a paper uh, titled Parallel Distributed Processing Approach to Mathematical Cognition, where in the introduction, there's some beautiful dis- discussion of mathematics. And uh, you reference there uh, Tristan Needham, who criticizes a narrow formal view of mathematics by liking the studying of mathematics as symbol manipulation to studying music without ever hearing a note. So from that perspective, what do you think is mathematics? What is this world of mathematics like?
1: Well, I think of mathematics as um, a set of tools for exploring idealized worlds that um, often turn out to be uh, extremely relevant to the real world, but need not. Um, but they're worlds in which objects exist with idealized properties and in which the relationships among them can be characterized with precision so as to allow the implications of certain facts to then allow you to derive other facts with certainty. So, you know, if uh, you have two triangles and you know that there is um, uh, an angle in the first one that has the same measure as an angle in the second one, and you know that the lengths of the sides adjacent to that angle in each of the two triangles, uh, the corresponding sides adjacent to that angle are also have the same measure, then you can then conclude that the triangles are congruent, that is to say they have all of their properties in common. and And that is something about triangles. It's not a matter of formulas. These are idealized objects. In fact, you know, we built bridges out of triangles and uh, we understand uh, how to measure the height of something we can't climb by um, extending these ideas about triangles a little further (laughs) And, um, uh, you know, all of the ability to um, get a tiny speck of matter launched from uh, the planet Earth to intersect with some tiny, tiny little body way out in way beyond Pluto somewhere at exactly a predicted time and date is 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 something that depends on these ideas, right? So, but, and and it's actually uh, happening in the real physical world that these ideas make contact with it uh, in those kinds of instances. Um, And um, so, but, you know, there are these, idealized objects, these triangles or these distances or these points, whatever they are, that um, uh, allow for this um, set of tools to be created that then gives human beings the—it's uh, this incredible leverage that they didn't have without these concepts. And uh, I think this is actually already true when we think about just, you know, the natural numbers. Um, I always like to include zero, so I'm going to say the, <laughs> the non-negative <laughs> integers. But <laughs> that's that's a place where some people prefer not to include zero. But
0: uh, uh, we like zero here. So natural <laughs> numbers: zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and so on.
1: Yeah, and and you know because they give you the ability to. um be exact about, um, like, how many sheep you have. Like, you know, I sent you out this morning. There were 23 sheep. You came back with only 22. What happened?
0: Yeah. Right. The fundamental problem of physics how many sheep you have? Yeah. <laughs> it's a fundamental problem of life,
1: of human uh, society that you damn well better bring back the same number of sheep as you started <laughs> with. Uh, and you know it allows commerce it allows um contracts it allows the establishment of uh records and so on to have systems that allow these things to be notated but they they have um an inherent aboutness to them that's at one at the one and the same time sort of abstract and idealized and generalizable while at the other on the other hand um potentially very, very grounded and concrete. And one of the things that uh, makes for the um, incredible achievements of the human mind is the fact that humans invented these idealized systems that leverage the power of human thought in such a way as to allow all this kind of thing to happen and And so that's what mathematics to me is the development of systems for thinking about uh the properties and relations among uh sets of idealized objects and um uh, you know the the mathematical notation system that we unfortunately focus way too much on is um, just our way of expressing uh, propositions about these properties.
0: Right, it's, it's just just like we're talking with Chomsky in language, it's the thing we've invented for the communication of those ideas. They're not necessarily the deep representation of those ideas. Yeah. So what, um, what's, a, what's a good way to model such powerful mathematical, reasoning would you say what what are some ideas you have for capturing this in a model
1: the insights that human mathematicians have had is a combination of the kind of the intuitive kind of connectionist like knowledge that makes it so that something is just like obviously true so that you don't have to think about why it's true that then makes it possible to then take the next step and ponder and reason and figure out something that you previously didn't have that intuition about it then ultimately becomes a part of the intuition that the next generation of mathematical thinkers have to ground their own thinking on so that they can extend the ideas even further. I came across this quotation uh, from Henri Poincaré while I was um, walking in the, in the woods with my wife in a, a state park in Northern California uh, late last summer. And what it said on the bench was, it is by logic that we prove, but by intuition that we discover. And so what what for me, the the essence of the of the project is to understand how to bring the intuitive connectionist resources to bear on letting the intuitive discovery arise,, uh, you know, from... Engagement in thinking with this formal system. Mm -hmm. So I I think of you know the ability of somebody like Hinton or Newton or Einstein or Rommelhart or Poincaré to um Archimedes is another example, right? So suddenly a flash of insight occurs. It's it's like the constellation of all of these simultaneous constraints that somehow or other causes the mind to settle into a, a novel state that it never did before and, and give rise to a new idea um, that, you know, then <laughs> you can say, okay, well, now how can I prove this? You know, how do I write? down the steps of that theorem that that allow me to make it rigorous and certain and so i feel like the the kinds of things that we're beginning to see um deep learning systems do of their own accord kind of gives me this feeling of of um i don't know hope or encouragement that ultimately um it will all uh happen um so in, in particular as uh many people now have have uh, become really interested in thinking about you know neural networks that have been trained with massive amounts of text mhm can be given a prompt and they can then sort of generate some really interesting, fanciful, creative story from that prompt. Um, And uh, there's, there's kind of like a sense that they've somehow synthesized something like novel out of the, you know, all of the particulars of all of the, billions and billions of experiences that went into the training data that that gives rise to something like this sort of intuitive sense of what would be a a fun and interesting little story to tell or something like that it just sort of wells up out of the out of the letting the thing play out its own imagining of what somebody might say given this prompt as a as a input to to get it to to start to generate its own thoughts and and to me that that sort of represents the potential of capturing this stu- the intuitive side of this
0: yeah, and there's other examples i don't know if you find them as captivating as you know on the deep mind side with alpha zero if you study chess the kind of solutions that it has come up in terms of chess it, it, it is it, it there's novel ideas there it feels very uh, like there's brilliant moments of insight and the mechanism they use, uh, if you think of search as as maybe more towards good old fashioned AI and, and then there's the connectionist the uh, you neural know, network that has the intuition of looking at a board, looking at a set of patterns and saying, how good is this set of positions? And the next few positions, how good are those? And that's it, and those, that's just an intuition um yeah, yeah. grandmasters have this an understanding positionally tactically how good the situation is how how can it be improved without doing this full like deep search um and then maybe doing a little bit of the what uh human chess players call calculation which is the search mm-hmm. They're taking a particular set of steps down the line to see how they unroll but there there is moments of genius in those systems too so that's another Hopeful illustration that from neural networks can emerge this novel creation of an idea.
1: Yes, and I think that you know I think Demis Hassabis is um, you know he's spoken about those things. He uh, I heard him uh, describe a, a move that was made in in one of the Go matches against Lee Sedol in this very, in a very similar way and and. Um, it caused me to become really excited to (laughs) kind of collaborate with some of those guys at at DeepMind. So I think, though, that what, what I like to really emphasize here is one part of what I like to emphasize about mathematical cognition, at least, is that philosophers and logicians going back three or even a little more than 3,000 years ago began to develop these formal systems and gradually the whole idea about thinking formally got constructed Um, and you know, it's preceded Euclid, um, certainly present in the work of Thales and others. And I'm not a, the world's leading expert in all the details of that history, but Euclid's Elements were the the kind of the touch point of a of a coherent document that sort of laid out this idea of a actual formal system within which these objects were characterized and the um, the system of uh, inference that um, allowed new truths to be derived from others was sort of like established as a paradigm. And um, what what I find interesting is, the idea that the ability to become a person who is capable of thinking in this abstract formal way is, you know, a result of the same kind of immersion uh, in in experience, thinking in that way that you know we now begin to think of our understanding of language as being right so we immerse ourselves in in a particular language in a particular world of objects and their relationships and we learn to talk about that and we develop intuitive understanding of the real world in in a similar way we can think that what academia has created for us what, you know, those early philosophers in their academies in Athens and Alexandria and others, other places uh, allowed was the development of these uh, schools of thought, modes of thought that, that then become deeply ingrained. And, you know, it, it becomes what it is that makes it so that somebody like Jerry Fodor would think that um systematic thought is the essential characteristic of the human mind as opposed to a derived an an acquired characteristic that results from acculturation in a certain mode that's been invented by humans
0: would you say it's more fundamental than like language if we start dancing if we, if we bring Chomsky back into the conversation, first of all, is it unfair to draw a line between mathematical cognition and language, linguistic cognition?
1: I think that's a very interesting question. And I think um, it's one of the ones that I'm actually very interested in right now. Um, but i I think the answer is, In important ways, it is important to draw that line, but then to come back and look at it again and see uh, some of the subtleties and interesting aspects of the difference. Um, So, if we think about Chomsky himself, um, he... uh, was born into an academic family. His father was a professor of rabbinical studies at a small rabbinical college in Philadelphia. Um, And he was deeply enculturated in, uh, you know, a culture of thought and reason and brought to the, effort to understand natural language this profound engagement with these formal systems and um, you know I think that there was tremendous power in that and that Chomsky had some amazing insights into the structure of natural language but that <laughs> and I'm going to use the word But there. The actual intuitive knowledge of these things only goes so far and does not go as far as it does in people like Chomsky himself. And this was something that was discovered in the PhD dissertation of Lila Gleitman, who was actually trained in the same linguistics department with Chomsky. Mm -hmm. So what Lila discovered was that the intuitions that linguists had about even the meaning of a phrase, not just about its grammar, but about what they thought a phrase must mean, were very different from the intuitions of an ordinary person who wasn't a formally trained thinker. And well, it recently has become much more salient. I happen to have learned about this when I myself was a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, but um, I never knew how to put it together with all of my other thinking about these things. So, so I actually currently have the hypothesis that formally trained linguists and other formally trained um, academics, uh, whether it be Linguistics, philosophy, cognitive science, computer science, machine learning, mathematics um, have a mode of engagement with experience that is intuitively, deeply structured to be more organized around uh, the systematicity uh, and um, ability to be conformant with the principles of a system than, uh, than is actually true of the natural human mind without that immersion.
0: That's fascinating. So The different fields and approaches with which you start to study the mind actually take you away from the natural operation of the mind, so it makes it very difficult for you to <laughs> to, to be somebody who introspects.
1: Yes, and you know this is where um, uh, things about human belief and so-called knowledge um, that we consider um, private. Not our business to manipulate in others. Uh, We are not entitled to tell somebody else what to believe about certain kinds of things. Um, What are those beliefs? Well, they are the product of this sort of immersion and enculturation. Uh, That is what I believe.
0: So, and that's limiting.
1: It's it's something to be aware of.
0: <laughs> Does that limit you from uh, having a good model of some uh, of cognition? It I mean, can. So, when you look at mathematical or linguistics, so I mean, what what is that line then? What uh, so, so is Chomsky unable to sneak up to the full picture of cognition? Are you when you're focusing on mathematical? Uh, thinking are you also unable to do so
1: i think you're you're right i think that's a great way of characterizing it
0: and um i
1: also think that um it's related to um the concept of beginner's mind uh and um another concept called the expert blind spot so the expert blind spot is much more prosaic seeming than than this point that you were just making but it's mm-hmm. it's something that plagues experts when they try to communicate their understanding to non-experts and that is that things are self-evident to them that they they can't begin to even think about how they could explain it to somebody else because it's like, well, it's just like so patently obvious that it must be true. And, um, you know, like, um, when Kronacker said, God made the natural numbers, all else is the work of man, he was expressing that that intuition that um somehow or other, you know, the basic fundamentals of discrete quantities being countable and innumerable and you know indefinite in number, um was was not something that had to be discovered. Um hmm but he was wrong it turns out that uh many cognitive scientists agreed with him for a time there was a long period of time where there were where um you know the natural numbers were considered to be a part of the innate endowment of you know core knowledge or you know to use the kind of phrases that uh Spelke and and Carey used to talk about what they believe are the innate primitives of the human mind and um, they no longer believe that they. It's actually um, been more or less accepted by almost everyone that the natural numbers are actually a cultural construction, and it's it's so interesting to go back and sort of like study those few people who still exist who you know who don't have those systems. Mm-hmm. So so this is just an example to me, and. Where you know a certain mode of thinking about language itself, or a certain mode of thinking about geometry and those kinds of relations, so it becomes so second nature that you don't know what it is that you need to teach.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and in fact, we don't really teach it all that explicitly anyway. And it's it's you know. Y- y- you take a math class, the professor sort of teaches it to you the way they understand it. Some of the students in the class sort of like, you know, they get it, they start to get the way of thinking and they can actually do the problems that get, get put on the homework that the professor thinks are interesting and challenging ones. But, but, but most of the students who don't kind of engage as deeply don't ever get, you know, Mm -hmm. and we, we think oh that man must be brilliant he must have this special insight but i you know he must have some you know biological sort of bit that's different right that makes him so that he or she could have that insight but i i'm I, although i don't want to dismiss biological individual differences completely i i find it much more interesting to think about the possibility that um you know, it was that difference in the dinner table conversation at the Chomsky house mm-hmm. when he was growing up that made it so that he had that cast of mind.
0: Yeah, and uh, there's there's a few topics we talked about that kind of interconnect. Because I wonder, the better I get at certain things, we humans, the deeper we understand something, what are you starting to then miss about the rest of the world? We talked about um, uh, David and his uh, degenerative mind, and you know when you look in the mirror and wonder how different am I am I cognitively from the man I, I was a month ago from the man I was a year ago like what you know if I can um, having thought about language if I'm Chomsky for for ten, 20 years, what am I no longer able to see? What is in my blind spot and how big is that? And then to somehow be able to leap back out of your deep like structure that you formed for yourself about thinking about the world, leap back and look at the big picture again, or, or jump out of the, your current way of thinking. Um, and to be able to introspect, like what are the limitations of your mind how is your mind less powerful than it used to be or more powerful or different, powerful in different ways. So that that seems to be a, a difficult thing to do because we're living, we're looking at the world through the lens of our mind, right? To step mm-hmm. outside and introspect is difficult, but it seems necessary if yes. you want to make progress.
1: You know, one of the threads of psychological research that's always been very, um, I don't know, important to me to be aware of is is, is the idea that um, our explanations of our own behavior aren't necessarily um, actually part of the causal process that caused that behavior to occur mm. or even... Um, valid observations of the set of constraints that led to the outcome. But they are post-hoc rationalizations that we can give based on information at our disposal about what might have contributed to the result that we came to uh, when asked. And um, so this this is an idea that was introduced in a very important paper by Nisbet and Wilson about you know the limits on our ability to to uh, be aware of the factors that cause us to make the choices that we make, um, and um, you know, I think it's it's uh, it's something that we really ought to be much more um, cognizant of in general as human beings is that our own insight. Into exactly why we hold the beliefs that we do, and we hold the attitudes, and make the choices, and 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 feel the feelings that we do is not something that we um we totally control or totally observe, and um it's subject to you know uh, our culturally transmitted understanding of what it is that is the mode that we give to explain uh these things uh when asked to do so as much as it is about anything else and so it, 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 even our ability to inter- introspect and think we have access to our own thoughts is a product of of culture and uh belief you know practice
0: so let me ask you the big uh... Question of advice, so you've you've lived an incredible life in terms of the ideas you've put out into the world, in terms of the trajectory you've taken through your career, through your life. What advice would you give to young people today, in high school, in college, about um, how to have a career or how to have a life they can be proud of?
1: Finding the thing that you are intrinsically motivated to engage with and then celebrating that discovery is, is what, uh, what it's all about. <laughs> uh, when, when, when I was in college, I struggled with that. I, I, um, I had thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist because I I think I was interested in human psychology in high school. And at that time, the only sort of information I had that had anything to do with the psyche was, you know, Freud and Eric Fromm and sort of popular psychiatry Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And so, well, they were psychiatrists, right? So I had to be a psychiatrist. And uh, that meant I had to go to medical school. And I I got to college and I find myself taking, you know, the first semester of a three-quarter physics class and it was mechanics and this was so far from what it was I was interested in but it was also too early in the morning in the winter court semester so I I never made it to the physics class Um, but I wandered about the rest of my freshman year and um, most of my sophomore year uh, until uh, I found myself in the midst of this situation where around me um, there was this big revolution happening. I was at Columbia University in 1968, and the Vietnam War is going on. Columbia is building a gym in Morningside Heights, which is part of Harlem. And people are thinking, oh, the big bad rich guys are stealing the the, the parkland that belongs to the people of Harlem. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're part of the military-industrial complex, which is enslaving us and sending us all off to war in Vietnam. And um, so there was a big revolution that involved a confluence of black activism and, you know, SDS and social justice, and the whole university blew up and got shut down. And um, I got a chance to sort of think about why people were behaving the way they were in this context. (laughs) And I you know i happened to have taken mathematical statistics i happened to have been taking psychology that quarter just psych 1 and somehow things in that space all ran together in my mind and got me really excited about about asking questions about why people what made certain people go into the buildings and not others and things like that and so suddenly i had a path forward that and i had just been wandering around aimlessly and at the different points in my career, you know, and I think, okay, well, should I take this class or should I just read that book about some idea that I want to understand better, you know, or should I, should I pursue the thing that excites me and interests me? Or should I, you know, meet some requirement, you know, that's, I always did the latter. So I ended up my my professors in psychology were thought I was great. They wanted me to go to graduate school. Um they they nominated me for phi beta kappa and I went to the phi beta kappa in the ceremony and this guy came up and oh, he said, "Oh, are you magna summa?" And I wasn't even getting honors based on my grades. They just happened to have thought I was interested enough in ideas to belong to Phi Beta Kappa.
0: So, I mean, would it be fair to say you kind of stumbled around a little bit uh, through accidents of uh, too early morning of classes in physics and so on until you discovered intrinsic motivation, as you mentioned? And then that's it. It hooked you. And then you celebrate the fact that this happens to yeah, human beings. And then, yeah,
1: like, like uh, and what is it that made? what i did intrinsically motivating to me well that's interesting and i don't know all the answers to it and i don't think uh i want to i i want anybody to think that um you should be sort of in any way i don't know sanctimonious or anything about it you know it's like i really enjoyed doing statistical analysis mm-hmm. of data i really enjoyed Running my own experiment, which was what I got a chance to do in the psychology department that chemistry and physics had never – I never imagined that mere mortals would ever do an experiment in those sciences except one that was in the textbook that you were told to do in lab class but in psychology we were already like even when i was taking psych 1 it turned out we had our own rat and we got to after two set experiments we got to okay do something you think of you know with your rat you know so <laughs> it's the opportunity to do it myself yeah <laughs> and and to to bring together a certain set of things that that engaged me intrinsically and and i think it it's it has something to do with why certain people turn out to be you know, profoundly um, amazing musical geniuses, right? They get immersed in it at an early enough point, and it just sort of gets into the fabric. So, my my little brother had intrinsic motivation for music, as we witnessed when he discovered how to put records on the phonograph when he was like thirteen <laughs> months old. And, and recognize which one he wanted to play, not because he could read the labels, because he could sort of see which ones had which scratches, which were the different you know, oh, that's Rapidy Espanol and that's
0: oh wow, you
1: know and and and, and he uh, enjoyed
0: that that and, connected and, with him somehow. And, yeah,
1: you know. and and there was something that it fed into and it, you're extremely lucky if you have that and if you can nurture it and can let it grow and let it be be an important part of your life.
0: Yeah, those are those are the two things. Is like be attentive enough to to feel it when it comes. Like this is something special. I mean, I don't know. uh, For example, I really like um, tabular data, like Excel sheets. Like it brings me deep joy. I don't. I don't know how useful that is for anything. But there's. there's This, part of what I'm talking about, okay, exactly. Absolutely. So there's like a million, not a million, but there's a lot of things like that. Uh, for me, you have to hear that for yourself. Like, be like, realize this. This is really joyful. But then the other part that you're mentioning, which is the nurture, is take time and, and stay with it, stay with it a while, and, mm-hmm. and see where that takes you uh, in life.
1: Yeah, and I think I think the um, the the motivational engagement results in the immersion that then creates the opportunity to obtain the expertise. So, you know, uh, we, oh, we could call it the, right there. <laughs> the Mozart effect, right? The, I mean, when effect. I think about Mozart, I think about, you know, the person who was born as the fourth member of the family string quartet, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they handed him the violin when he was 6 weeks old all right start playing you know it's, it's like and um so uh, the the level of immersion there was was amazingly profound but uh hopefully he also had you know some something maybe this is where the more uh sort of the genetic part comes in sometimes i think uh you know, something in him resonated to the music so that, that the synergy of the combination of that was so powerful. So so that's what I really consider to be the Mozart effect. It's sort of the, the synergy of something with with experience that, that then results in the unique flowering of a particular, you know, mind. Um, so I, I know my siblings and I are all very different from each other, we've all gone in our own different directions. And, you know, I mentioned my younger brother who was very musical. Um, I had my other younger brother was like this amazing, like intuitive engineer. Um, and um, my sister, one of my sisters was passionate about uh, in, you know, water conservation well before it was, a, a, a you know, such a hugely important issue that it is today. So we all sort of somehow these find a different thing, um, and uh, I don't I don't mean to say it isn't uh, tied in with something about about us biologically, but but it's also when that happens, where you can find that, then, you know, you can do your thing and you can be excited about it. Mm -hmm. So people can be excited about fitting people on bicycles as well as excited about making neural networks
0: achieve insights into human cognition, right? Yeah, like uh, for me personally, I've always been excited about love and friendship between humans. And just like the actual experience of it. Since I was a child, just observing people around me and also been excited about robots. And there's something in me that thinks (laughs) I really would love to explore how those two things combine and it doesn't make any sense. A lot of it is also timing, just to think of your own career and your own life. You found yourself in certain pieces, places, that happened to involve some of the greatest thinkers of our time, and so it just worked out that like you guys yeah. developed those ideas, and uh, there may be a lot of other people similar to you, and they were brilliant, and they never found that that right connection and place to where they their ideas could flourish. So it's timing, it's place, it's uh, it's people, and uh, ultimately the whole ride. You know, it's uh, undirected. <laughs> uh, can I ask you about something you mentioned in terms of psychiatry when you were younger. Because I had a similar experience of of, of you know reading Freud and uh, Carl Jung and just you know those kind of po- popular psychiatry ideas, and that was a dream for me early on in in high school to uh, like I hope to understand the human mind by I, I, somehow psychiatry felt like the right discipline for that. Do, does that make you sad that psychiatry is not? The 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 mechanism by which you want to exp- are able to explore the human mind. So for me, I was a little bit disillusioned because of how much um, prescription medication and biochemistry is involved in the discipline of psychiatry, as opposed to the dream of the the Freud like use the mechanisms of language to explore the human mind. So that was a little disappointing. And, and that's why I kind of went to computer science and thinking like, maybe you can explore the human mind by trying to build the thing.
1: Yes, I wasn't exposed to the, um, sort of the biomedical slash pharmacological aspects of psychiatry at that point, because um, I didn't, I dropped out of that
0: whole enough, idea the physics, of pre-med okay, gotcha. that I never
1: even found out about that until much later. But you're absolutely right, that's, Uh, So I was actually a member of the uh, National Advisory Mental Health Council. That is to say, the board of scientists who advised the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. And that was around the year 2000. And in fact, um, at that time, the man who came in as the new director, I had been on this board for a year when he came in. Um, said, okay, schizophrenia is a biological illness. It's a lot like cancer. We've made huge strides in curing cancer, and that's what we're going to do with schizophrenia. We're going to find the medications that are going to cure this disease, and we're not going to listen to anybody's grandmother anymore. And, um, you know, good old behavioral psychology is not something we're going to support any further. And, um, you know, he, he, uh, completely alienated me from the Institute and from all of its prior policies, which had been much more holistic, I think really at some level and, and basically, and and the, the other people on the board were like psychiatrists, right. And, uh, very biological psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. It didn't pan out, right? That 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 nothing has changed in right. in our ability to uh to help people with mental illness. Uh and um so 20 years later that 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 particular path uh was a dead end as far as I can tell.
0: Well there's some aspect to and sorry to romanticize the whole philosophical conversation about the human mind, but to me psychiatrists for a time held the flag of we're the deep thinkers. In the same way that physicists are the deep thinkers about the nature of reality, psychiatrists are the deep thinkers about the nature of the human mind. And I think that flag has been taken from them and carried by people like you. It's like, it's more in the cognitive psychology, especially when you have a foot in the computational view of the world, because you can both build it, you can like, Intuit about the functioning of the mind by building little models and being able to say mathematical things, and then deploying those models, especially in computers, to say, does this actually work? And they do a little like experiments, and then some combination of neuroscience, where you're starting to actually be able to observe, you know, do certain experiments on, on human beings and observe how the the, uh, the brain is actually functioning, and there. Using intuition, you can start being the philosopher. Like Richard Feynman is the philosopher. A cognitive uh, psychologist can become the philosopher, and psychiatrists become much more like doctors. They're like very medical. They help people with medication, by bio- biochemistry and so on. But they are no longer the 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 book writers and the philosophers. Which of course I admire. The I, I admire the Richard Feynman ability to do great low level. Uh, mathematics and physics and the high-level philosophy.
1: Yeah, I think it was uh, Fromm and Jung more than Freud that was sort of initially kind of like made me feel like, oh, this is really amazing and interesting, and um, I want to explore it further. I actually, when I got to college and I lost that thread, I I found more of it in sociology and literature, than I did in any place else. So I took quite a lot of both of those disciplines as an undergraduate. Um and you know, I was actually deeply ambivalent about the psychology because I was doing experiments after the initial flurry of interest in why people would occupy buildings during a insurrection and consider you know, uh, be be sort of like so overcommitted to their beliefs, but I ended up in in the psychology laboratory running experiments on pigeons, and and so I had these profound sort of like dissonance between okay, the kinds of issues that would be explored when I was thinking about uh, what I read about in in modern British literature um, versus what I could study with my pigeons in the laboratory that got resolved when I went to graduate school and I discovered cognitive psychology. And, and so for me, that was, uh, that was the path out of this sort of like extremely sort of, um, ambivalent divergence between the interest in the human condition and, and, uh, the des- desire to do, you know, actual mechanistically oriented thinking about it. Um, and I think we, we've we come a long way in that regard and that uh, and you're absolutely right that nowadays this is something that's accessible to people through um, the pathway in through computer science or the pathway in through uh, neuroscience. Um, you know, you can get derailed in neuroscience down to the bottom of the system where you might find the cures of various conditions, but you don't get a chance to think about the higher level stuff. So it's in the systems and cognitive neuroscience and Mm -hmm. computational intelligence miasma up there at the top that I think uh, these opportunities are most, are richest uh, right now. And um, so, yes, I am indeed blessed by having had the opportunity to fall into that uh, space.
0: So you mentioned the human condition. Speaking of which, you happen to be a human being who's unfortunately not immortal. That seems to be a fundamental part of the human condition that this riot ends. Do you think about the fact that you're going to die one day? Are you afraid of death? Uh, I I would
1: say that I am not as much afraid of death as I am of, um, degeneration. Uh, and, uh, I say that in part for reasons of having, you know, seen some tragic degenerative situations, uh, unfold. It's exciting when you can continue to participate and, uh, feel like you're, you're near the, the place where the, the wave is breaking on the shore, if you like, <laughs> you know, um, and, and I, I, I think about, you know, my own, uh, future potential. Um, if, if I were to undergo a, uh, begin to suffer from dementia, uh, Alzheimer's disease or semantic dementia or some other condition, you know, I would sort of gradually lose the thread of that ability. And, um, uh, so, so one can live on for several, for a decade after, you know, sort of having to retire because one no longer has, uh, these kinds of, um, abilities to engage. And, uh, I think that's the thing that I feared the most—the
0: losing of that, like the that that um, the the breaking of the way, the flourishing of the mind, where you you have these ideas and they're swimming around. You're able to play with them, and yeah, it, and, and, and 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 collaborate with other people mm-hmm. who you know
1: are themselves uh, um, really helping to push these ideas forward. So, yeah. What, what about
0: the edge of the cliff? The uh, <laughs> the end. I mean the the mystery of it the, the I mean
1: the migrated con- sort of conception of mind and uh, you know sort of continuous sort of way of thinking about most things makes it so that uh to to me the 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 um the discreetness of that transition is less <laughs> less, <Yeah>. less less <laughs> apparent than it seems to be to most people I see I see <laughs>
0: yeah um uh, yeah, I wonder. So I don't know if you know the work of Ernest Becker and, and so on. I wonder what what role mortality and our ability to be cognizant of it, and anticipate it, and perhaps be afraid of it what role that plays in in our
1: well, reasoning I, of the world. I think that it it can be motivating to people to think they have a limited period left. Um, I think in in my own case, you know, it it's like seven or eight years ago now that I was I was sitting around doing experiments on decision making that were um, satisfying in a certain way because I could really get closure on what whether the model fit the data perfectly or not. And I could see how one could test, you know, the predictions in monkeys as well as humans and really see what the neurons were doing. But I just realized, hey, wait a minute, you know, I may only have about 10 or 15 years left here. And I don't feel like I'm getting towards the answers to the really interesting questions while I'm doing this this particular level of work. And that's when I said to myself, okay, um... Let's pick something that's hard, yeah, <laughs> you know, so that's when I started working on mathematical cognition. Mm-hmm. and um I, I I think it was more in terms of, well, I got fifteen more years possibly of useful life left. Let's imagine that it's only ten. I, I'm actually getting close to the end of that now, maybe three or four more years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm beginning to feel like, well, I probably have another five after that. So okay, I'll give myself another another six or eight.
0: Um, but a deadline is looming, I'm, and It's not gonna
1: go on forever. Yeah. And so, um, so uh, yeah, I gotta keep um, thinking about the questions that I think are the interesting and important ones for sure.
0: What do you hope your legacy is? You've done some incredible work in your life as a man, as a scientist. When uh, the aliens and the human civilization is long gone, and the aliens are reading the encyclopedia about the human species. What do you hope is the paragraph written about you? I
1: I would want it to sort of highlight um, a a couple things uh, that I was, you know, able to see... um, one path that was more exciting to me than the one that seemed already to be there for a cognitive psychologist, you know, but not for any super special reason other than that I'd had the right context prior to that, but that I had gone ahead and followed that lead, you know, and then I forget the exact wording, but I, I said, uh, in this, preface that the, the joy of science is the moment in which, you know, a partially formed thought in the mind of one person gets crystallized a little better in the discourse and becomes the foundation of some exciting concrete Piece of actual scientific progress, and I feel like that you know moment happened when Rumelhart and I were doing the interactive activation model, and when Rumelhart heard Hinton talk about gradient descent and um, having the objective function to guide the learning process, and um, it it happened a lot in that period, and I I sort of seek that kind of thing in my. Uh, collaborations with my students, right? So, um, you know, the idea that this is a person who uh, contributed to science by finding exciting collaborative opportunities to engage with other people through um, is something that uh, I certainly hope is part of the paragraph.
0: And uh, like you said, taking a step maybe in directions that are non not obvious so it's the, the the old robert frost road less taken so maybe because you said like this incomplete initial idea that step you take is a little bit uh off the beaten path
1: if if i could just say one more thing here sure. <laughs> i uh th- this was something that really contributed to energizing me in a way that i uh <laughs> that i i feel it would be useful to share i i mm-hmm. uh, my, my PhD dissertation project was completely I- I empirical experimental project. And I, I wrote a paper based on the, the two main experiments that were the core of my dissertation. And I submitted it to a journal. And uh, at the end of the paper, I had a little section where I laid out my... Um, the beginnings of my theory about what I thought was going on that would explain the data that I had collected. And uh, I had submitted the paper to the Journal of Experimental Psychology. So I got back a a letter from the editor saying, thank you very much. These are great experiments. We'd love to publish them in the journal. Uh, But what we'd like you to do is to leave the theorizing to the theorists and um, take that part out of the paper. And so I did. I took that part out of the paper. Uh, But, you know, I almost found myself labeled as a non theorist, right, by this. Uh, And um, I could have like succumbed to that and said, okay, well, I guess my job is to just go on and do experiments, right? But, but, uh, that's not what I wanted to do. And, and so when I, when I got to my assistant professorship, um, although I continued to do experiments because I knew I had to get some papers out, I also, at the end of my first year, submitted my first article to Psychological Review, which was the Theoretical Journal, where I took that section and elaborated it and wrote it up and submitted it to them. And they didn't accept that either. But they said, oh, this is interesting. You should keep thinking about it this time. And then that was what got me going to think, okay, you know. So it's not a superhuman thing to contribute to the development of theory. You know, you don't have to be you, – you can do it as a mere mortal. <laughs> and,
0: and the broader, <laughs> I think, lesson is: don't succumb to the labels of a particular yeah, well, yeah, reviewer that's for in a sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, or, or
1: or anybody labeling you, right? Yeah, you
0: know, exactly. I mean that. Yeah, exactly. And then you, especially as you become successful, you'll label labels get assigned to you for that you're successful for yeah, that I'm thing. A connectionist or yeah. a
1: cognitive scientist, and not a neuroscientist. And then whatever. you can
0: you can completely. That's just. That's the stories of the past. You're today a new person that can completely revolutionize in totally new areas. So don't let those labels um, hold you back. Well, let me ask the big question. Um, When you look into the... You you said it started with Columbia trying to observe these humans and they're doing weird stuff and you want to know why are they doing this stuff. So let's Zoom out even bigger? At the 100 plus billion people who've ever lived on earth. Why do you think we're all doing what we're doing? What do you think is the meaning of it all? The big why question? We seem to be very busy doing a bunch of stuff and we seem to be uh, kind of directed towards somewhere, Um, but why? Well, um, I
1: myself think that we make meaning for ourselves and that, we find inspiration in the meaning that other people have made in the past, uh, you know, and the the great uh, religious thinkers, uh, of the first millennium BC and, you know, few, few that came in the early part of the second, uh, millennium, uh, you know, laid down some important foundations for us, um, but i i i do believe that you know we are uh an emergent uh result of a process that happened naturally without guidance and um that meaning is what we make of it and that the creation of uh efforts to reify meaning in um like religious traditions and so on is just a part of the expression of that, of that goal that we have to, you know, not, not find out what the meaning is, but to make it ourselves. And um, so to me, it's something that's very personal. It's very individual. It's like, meaning will come for you through the particular combination of synergistic elements that are your fabric and your experience and your um, context and your and um you know you should it's it's it it's all made in a in a certain kind of a local context though, right? Mm-hmm. What Here I am at UCSD with this brilliant man, Romel Hart, uh, who's having, you know, these doubts about um, symbolic artificial intelligence that resonate with my desire to see it grounded in the biology. And... Um, Uh, let's make the most of that, you know,
0: (laughs) yeah. And so, and so, from that, like little pocket, there's uh, some kind of uh peculiar little emergent process that then, uh, which is basically each one of us, each one of us humans is a kind of you know, you think cells and they come together, and it's, it's an emergent process that then tells fancy stories about itself and then gets. just like you said, just enjoys the beauty of the stories we tell about ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's an emergent process that lives for a time, uh, is defined by its local pocket and context, uh, in time and space, and then tells pretty stories. And we write those stories down and then we celebrate how nice the stories are. And then it continues because we build stories on top of each other. And uh, eventually we'll colonize, hopefully, other planets, other... uh, Solar systems, other galaxies, and will tell even better stories. But it all starts uh, here on Earth. Jay, you're uh, speaking of uh, peculiar emergent processes that uh, lived one heck of a story <laughs> you're You're one of the the, the, the great scientists uh, of cognitive uh, science, of psychology, of computation. It's a huge honor that you would talk to me today. That you spend your very valuable time. I really enjoyed talking with you, and thank you for all the work you've done. I can't wait to see what you do next.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I, uh, you know, this has been an amazing opportunity for me to uh, let ideas that I've never fully expressed before come out because you asked such a wide range of, um, you know, the deeper questions that we're all we've all been thinking about for so long. So, thank you very much for that.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Jay McClelland. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Jeffrey Hinton. In the long run, curiosity-driven research works best. Real breakthroughs come from people focusing on what they're excited about. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.